watching online. Hopefully things are functioning correctly. Um, In the midst of all that's going on, we have the joy and the privilege of turning our heads and our hearts toward God's Word. So let's do that together today as we continue on in our series in Exodus. We're going to be looking at the last part of Exodus chapter 12 and most of, but not all of, of chapter 13. And as we are, we're, we're going to be considering this incredible gift that God calls the people to in commemorating this incredible victory that God has secured. And so for us, we get to enjoy and rejoice in this call to celebrate and remember the victory that God secures. That plays a role in our lives, weekly, daily. And so we're going to turn our attention to that. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 13. So if you would, look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it, at its appointed time from year to year. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that you, um, you give it to us to reveal to us who you are, what you do, your ways and your word. God, we pray that our hearts would be receptive through faith, that you would do a good work in us even now as we consider it. So be with the preaching, the hearing, the receiving of this, your word, to your glory and to our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On June 22nd, 2016, an estimated 1.5 million people descended upon the city of Cleveland to celebrate the 2015-16 NBA champions, Cleveland Cavaliers, as one who hails from Northeast Ohio, this was truly a momentous day. It took 52 years to get to that day, as the last time any professional team in that city celebrated a championship, it was 1964. Now, the city, the region, 
turned out ferociously. There are not 1.5 million people who live in the north, Northeast Ohio region. But they turned out as a once beleaguered, but now joy-filled fan base. And that turnout was both a visual display of decades of heartache, sports heartache, followed up with the most incredible joy. Parades are very common here in this New New England context that I live now, so you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. You're just used to it. But if you could dust off all the parades that you've had since then, you could probably think back to how you felt in 2004 when the Boston Red Sox wiped away 86 years of similar feels that Northeast Ohio felt. Now, yes, you've had the 80s Celtics and the 2000s Patriots to ease you through your anguish. Cleveland had no such thing. No. These moments are not forgotten. You don't forget them. They get lodged into your hearts. And we don't just simply remember. We retell the stories, don't we? And we rejoice anew, almost as if happening in real time. When we think back. We pass on to our kids what life was like before the victory. And we tell them all the incredible stories when that final buzzer went off or that last pitch was thrown. Commemorating a victory like this has a big purpose around it. It serves the community. It, it, it binds us together. It lifts up our heads. It encourages us to go on into the next season knowing the joys of victory. The people of God experienced the most remarkable victory in their deliverance from slavery, 430 years living in a land not their own, not promised to them, and those 430 years getting worse and worse and worse and horrific and terrible and deadly and awful, and they sat in that for a long time, crying out. And then God heard their cries, saw their plight, moved into action, and most remarkably brought about the most decisive victory over the world power. They experienced a victory. And they were given instructions here in the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 that for them was commemorating what the Lord had done in bringing them out of Egypt. And this serves an important purpose in their lives, and its principle serves an important purpose in our lives right now. So let's take time to consider this together. Let's consider what we see here in the commemorating of a victory. It serves as a call to us, a two sort of prong call on our lives when we commemorate what God has done. The first call is a call to worship. It is a call to have our hearts squarely fixed 
on the God who has rescued us. It is a call to worship, but it is also impacting in the manner in which we live. It is also a call to faithfulness, that we would live according to the victory in which we've received. So by commemorating, by remembering, by building in rhythms into the lives of the people of God, they are given this call to set their hearts' affection, their worship on God, to set their lives' direction Godward in the manner in which they live. And the same is binding and true for us as we consider this great and glorious victory that we have in the cross. The cross too, like the story in Exodus, is to lift up our heads, to lift up our hearts, to bind us together, and to give us that renewed vigor and joy and encouragement and courage to live out our lives following after him. So we too have the same calls. A call to worship and a call to faithfulness when we look upon the cross. So let's consider those together as we think through our passage, as we think through the story of Exodus, as we think about the cross. Let us think in terms of commemorating what God has done, who God is, what he has done, and how that has such a profound impact on who we are and how we live. More on that in a moment. So first, let's jump in. A call to worship. A call to worship. And in this call, we are to remember. But remember, is, it does, it's not a great word for what it is that we're doing. It's not just remembering details and data points and information. But it is, it is that sort of full-bodied, personal, emotional, affectionate, recalling and remembering and rejoicing that is in mind here. The kind of thing that you do when you remember LeBron James blocking Andre Iguodala as he went on to what was going to be an easy layup. You remember the joy and guttural sounds that came out of you when that happened. At least I do. It's something more and it comes from way down deep. And sometimes it comes out loudly. But you remember. And the emphasis, we have three commemorative acts that are built into the calendar of the people of God. Three of them here. We have the Passover, the consecration of the firstborn, and the feast of the unleavened bread. And all three, all three are deeply connected and set squarely on the Lord. On the Lord. We're going to move through five verses here pretty quickly. They should be on the screen. In Exodus twelve fifty one, the commemoration of Passover, we see this. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The very start of Passover is on that very day. Then looking at verse 3 of Exodus 13. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. What, why are they to remember this day? Because of the Lord and who he is and what he has done. 
to look at verse 9 of chapter 13. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. What? That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Or look at verse 14 of Exodus 13. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Then look again at verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand and or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. There is great, significant emphasis placed on who God is. If you noticed, all those lords are all caps. It's that Yahweh name, that covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithful, always God. The who. And what he has done by his strong hand, he has brought great rescue and deliverance. And in everything that they are instructed to do... Moses, by inspiration of the Spirit, is connecting it. All of its connective ligaments are to the character and work of God. So this is more than just simply remembering details or having a memory verse. There's something very deeply intentional, visual, and experiential about the remembering That the Lord, with a strong hand, brought the people out of Egypt. This is built into their calendar. It it starts their, their year. Their focus is constantly bringing their heart back to the reality that God is amazing and has done so. And this helps us see that the central place Yahweh is to have with the people is to be the center of their worship, of their very lives. Not just the songs that they sing, but of their whole being would be set squarely on God because he's amazing and he did amazing things. And that there isn't anyone or anything that can compare. That he truly is worth all the worship. These commemorative rhythms in the people of God are to keep their hearts focused on the worth of God to be the center of their worship. That who he is and what he does means everything. There are four questions that I would encourage you to write down. I don't have them on a slide, but they're not very hard to write down or remember to write down. These questions you can take and ask any passage as you are studying the Bible. In fact, they make for great questions if you're in a small group or if you're in like an accountability group or discipleship group or mentoring group. These kinds of questions help us navigate through God's word. Four questions to ask of Scripture. And the order of these questions is absolutely necessary. They're theologically significant. Simple questions. Profound 
answers. First is, as you come to a passage, ask, what does this say about who God is? What does this passage say about who God is? So when we come to the passage that we're considering, we see these acts that these these acts that the people are to do in their lives, in their rhythm of their calendar, it's communicating to us something about who God is. He is the faithful one. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is gracious. I mean, we can just sit there and marinate our heads and our hearts with all the answers about what this just descriptive passage about Passover and the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of the unleavened bread communicate to us about God. It's okay to just read scripture and have your head and your heart saturated with thoughts and affections just simply about who God is. Second question. From that, moving down from who God is, we then ask, what does this say about what God does? What does he do? In the passage, is there explicit, visual, clear things that God is doing? He's always God. He's always sovereign. So he's always in control. His will is always being accomplished, even when it's hard for us to see. But there are times in Scripture where it's clear God is doing. What is he doing? Well, here we're rejoicing and remembering that God delivers his people from bondage. He entered down into it in order to bring them up out of it. God rescues. God redeems. God restores. That's what God does. And we can just go into his word and we can have our heads and our hearts flooded with all of this content about who he is and what he does. Third question that we ask is that what does this passage say about who I am or who we are as God's people? What does it say about who I am or who we are? As we look at this and we'll dig into the the question three and question four in the second point of our message this morning is, is that it says that we have been rescued. So we're Rescued ones. We're redeemed ones. We're also set apart ones. So now our understanding of who we are is directly linked to understanding who God is and what he does. And this helps us understand these things because we want to, our lives and, and our perception of ourselves can be so shaped by the world around us that we believe incorrectly about what God sees when he looks at us. Fourth question then is what then does this passage say about how I or we live? What does this passage say about how I or we live? Well, now we start to see how the call to worship then sinks into a call to faithfulness and we'll get there in a moment. But those four questions... You can sit down with any book of the Bible and work through it together with others, with your family, by yourself, in various groups. And come away with this incredible description and picture 
of the character of God, his works and his ways, what that does to our lives, and how we are then to live. That's the sort of remembering that comes with this call to worship. That we are constantly aligning our heads and our hearts back to the truth of who God is and what he does. That it becomes to us that ever-increasing, unending fount of joy that fuels our worship. Because we're basking in his worth. We're seeing God is amazing. And it doesn't diminish. And what he does is so overwhelmingly awesome that we can't help but have that come up out of us in joy and hope. But it comes with us setting our thoughts, setting our hearts on who he is. And in so doing, it comes with reverence. We remember and we revere. This call to worship and these sort of commemorating victory acts that we see the God that God gives to his people are to be remembering acts and ones filled with reverence. The place of remembering, especially the rhythm and experience of remembering given here, is to keep our hearts focused upward in worship. God gave these acts to the people of God so that their hearts would be equipped and directed upward in worship. The heart is the center of the person. I mean, even the Egyptians believed that. It's that deep-seated spot within us that really just our, our real you, if you will, is, is down in there. And in our hearts, our hearts are to be cast upward in worship. Because our hearts, here's the reality of it, our hearts are wayward. God knew that when he gave those things to the people of God. He knew that. Our hearts are wayward. Easily distracted. Our hearts can be submerged in shame. When your heart is submerged in shame, you don't feel like you should be doing things for God. You just feel sunk down, waterlogged in shame. We are wayward, easily distracted, submerged in shame. And as a result, our hearts then can believe things that are not true. Not true about God. Not true about the nature of His grace. Not true about the victory He has over our sin, its power, its penalty, and one day, yes, even one day, its presence. We can believe wrongly about these things and then push ourselves down even further. Our hearts are at the center and God is building into the people of God a rhythm to call those hearts upward in worship. And here's the other thing about our hearts. It is the center of who we are. Even the Egyptians know it, but everyone knows it. There are many things that want the real estate of your hearts. Because what rules your heart shows up in your life. Whatever rules your heart shows up in how you live and what you live for. 
And so, things like comfort want to rule your heart. Things like relationships want to rule your heart. Things like acceptance wants to rule your heart. Wealth wants to rule your heart. Recognition for who you are and what you've done wants to rule your heart. Politics wants to rule your heart. Possessions and pleasures and keeping up with Instagram. They all, they all want to rule your heart. So if they can get the real estate of your heart, they can get your life. God cares deeply about you and your heart. And he builds in to the rhythm of God's people. Commemorative Wonderfully commemorative acts that call our hearts upward in worship. These things that want to rule our hearts, they offer glitter, but there is no gold, just a mirage. I love Proverbs 4.23. There's an old uh, Puritan by the name of John Flavel who wrote an entire treatise on just this one verse In seminary, we affectionately call him Flavalicious, but you don't have to call him that. Pretty sure he doesn't want to be called that. But he wrote a book on just this one singular verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. God cares deeply for you. And he wants you to not only know that you've been rescued, but that you are called to worship. And that is for you, your greatest good, to have your heart set squarely on who God is and all of his worth, rejoicing in all of his ways and his works. Why settle? Why settle for things that don't measure up and demand more and more And more from you. Guard your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of deep-seated, joy-filled reverence that shapes our lives and shows up in how we live them. And our lives, our worship is saying, God is worth it. God is worth our rejoicing reverence and our reverent joy. He is worth it. Do you have enough of a grasp of the character of God and His ways and what He does to be able to agree with that? That He alone is worth your worthship. God's character, His works, His ways, and His word reveal His worth. Do you know that? Do you see that? Do you read that with that sort of hunger and anticipation and appetite and joy? And notice, I'm not even talking about the circumstances in your life. Because those are hard. Harsh even at times. I'm asking you to take your heart and set it squarely on the worth of God. Who He is and what He does.
and to rest there with great joy and wonder, even in the midst of a hard and harsh life. So guard your heart by remembering together who God is and what he does. Now, that call to worship that's inherent in these acts that God has built into the rhythm of his people's calendar, if you will, is also a call to faithfulness. It is a call to living out your lives set apart. Set apart. As our hearts are set upward in worship, our lives are to be lived forward in faithfulness. Hearts set upward in worship will be more equipped to live forward in faithfulness. If your heart is not upward in worship, don't expect to be close with faithfulness. One fuels the other. Look at Exodus 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate. It means to be set apart for a very specific purpose. To be set apart. The people of God themselves as a whole are set apart for a very specific purpose. To live for God, following after Him. As if He really is worth the life that they have received. To live as if God really is worth it. I mean, the theme for our series in Exodus is that we are delivered to dwell. And the idea of dwell isn't just to be with God, although it does mean that. It means following after God, with God, and for God. Now, he calls us to live after him, with him, and for him. And the commemorating rhythms built into the lives of the people of God are to direct their hearts upward in worship and to direct their lives forward in faithfulness. And so as we go back to those four questions I gave you, as we saturate our heads and our hearts with who God is and what God does, it will inevitably lead us to see how those answers shape and impact who we are and how we live. And as we see ourselves as redeemed ones, we begin to see and understand that it's not just redeemed from something, but it is also redeemed to something. It's not just redeemed from death, but it is also redeemed for life. Life following God. We are Just like the people of God in the Old Testament. By those who are clinging to the cross through faith in the one who died on that cross. We are brought up and out of our sin. sin, Slavery to sin. But we are also brought to and for the one who rescued us. We are brought to and for a life. In other words, God cares deeply about you and how you live. Now, I said earlier, those four questions I gave you, the order of them is theologically important. 
They are gospelly, not a word, gospelly important. In seminary, as I said, the preacher gets to make up words when he's preaching. That's one note that I remembered. Um, no, I'm just <laughs> These are theologically significant words in order and structure. We start with who God is. Then we see what God has done. Then we start to have an understanding of who we are and then how all that shapes how we live. If we invert the order, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to make God just like that taskmaster that we read about earlier in Egypt. When we make it all about how we are to live and we go backwards with those questions, we're going to come to different conclusions and, and, and ideas about who God is. We start with Him first. And as we gain greater understanding of His character and the depth and magnitude of His grace and the sufficiency of His Son and the power of His Spirit, then it starts to give us clearer understandings of who we are and how we are to live. And then we, got, then we start to see just how God has built in for the church commemorative rhythms for us to remember with great joy in our call to worship and call to faithfulness. So if we invert those questions and we make God the taskmaster, we look at church as attendance that we have to check off. But if we start with God and work our way down, when the church gathers together, it's not something to be checked off, but it's a parade to go celebrate. You see, last week we had communion. And this is part of it, as you get to know me a little bit better, I, there's, there's an aspect of me that was like really trying very hard to like get this sermon earlier, one week earlier, so that it could align with communion because it, it would have been great. But then the other part of me was like, well, no, I can't do that because it doesn't break down that way. <laughs> so, sorry. Last week we had communion, and I usually set up the time as we go into communion by drawing our attention to what we're doing together. We're, we're remembering, we're rejoicing, and we're relying. We're remembering the God of all grace and the cost that it took to rescue us. We are rejoicing in the sufficiency of that cost paid in full. And we're relying on that same God of all grace to live out our lives. Do you realize that communion, when we take it and we gather and we eat and we drink, it's not just some ritual function to check off as if you're tabulating a scorecard in heaven that you want to make sure you have enough points to get in. It's rather... 1.5 million people converging upon the city of Cleveland, rejoicing in the victory won. And God calls us to this rhythm because our hearts wander and we need to be called upward in worship. And because our lives are to be lived forward for Him in faithfulness. And He reminds us yet again when we come to the table that His grace is sufficient for us. Or how about baptism? It's an outward sign of an inward work of God's grace that brought about new life. And that new life is then to be lived. So when we are here and we're in this room and we're rejoicing in baptism, 
It is like 1.5 million people converging on the city of Cleveland, rejoicing in a victory won. Think about Romans 6.4. We probably say it at most of our baptism services at some point. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, what incredible news, by the glory of the Father, we too might now walk in newness of life. It's a call to worship, and it is a call to faithfulness that God builds into the rhythm of his people. Now, we do all of this. We follow after him. We rely upon his grace. Not for our glory, but for his. We are set apart for the glory of God. These commemorative acts built into the calendar of his people were to remind them of who they are, set apart ones, and what they are for For the glory of God. We don't live for our own merit badges. We live dependent on God's grace for His glory. Our call to faithfulness is not about who can pull up their bootstrap the quickest. Our call to faithfulness is all of us banding together, celebrating what God has done and reminding one another just how sufficient he is for our lives right now to be lived in following after him. And in for you and I, this exodus just draws me Christward every single week. I can't help it. And you, for you and I this day, In the person and work of Christ, the Christian is given all that is needed for worship and faithfulness in this life. 1 Peter is a great place to see that fleshed out. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says this about our lives in this world. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Upward. Hearts, upward. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice how understanding who God is and what he has done through Christ impacts our hearts and shapes our understanding of who we are. And informs how we are to live as hope-filled ones who then communicate with gentleness and respect the gospel to those who have no clue what they are seeing in our lives. God sufficiently brings that to us through Christ. Look at 1 Peter 4.11. So 1 Peter 3.15 is about our lives in this world. 1 Peter 4.11 is about our service together in the church, in the local church. And what are we to do? How are we to do it? How is this all to function together? Whether we're teaching two-year-olds in a, in a class or, or we're cleaning up chairs after our service or if we're helping one another in, the, in our lives to better understand who God is. Whatever it is that we do, play a men- instrument, preach, or run a camera, or just be very intentional to care for one another, whatever it is that we do in order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ. He's talking about our service together in the local church. Whatever it is you do. Do it for his glory. 
And then 1 Peter 5 closes with just that incredible reminder that we are to live out our lives, upward hearts in worship and forward lives and faithfulness, even when it's hard or the world around us is harsh. 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Notice that great emphasis, that personal emphasis. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Commemorating the victory with the rhythms that God has designed for his people helps our hearts grow upward in worship and our lives forward in faithfulness. And friends, this, what you and I are doing right now, and what I'll have the privilege of doing again together at 5 p.m., and what we'll get to do on Sunday, August 16th again, and so on and so forth. These things that we're doing together right now, hearing God's word, singing, Praying, being together, God intentionally designed to bring our hearts upward in worship and to equip our lives forward in faithfulness. We get to practice in this, in these weekly graces, together, every week. Every week. No matter what might be going on in your life, no matter how you might feel, Every week, there is this glorious parade commemorating a great victory waiting for you to be in. Even when your bones are tired and you feel like you're dragging them, even when the world around you is hard and the circumstances of your life harsh, they do not drown out all that God has done in all that God is. So even in your tiredness, we get to gather together, commemorating who God is, and what God has done, and what that means for our lives right now. What if that sort of switch happened in your head and heart? When you thought about gathering together on a Sunday morning. What if that switch flipped? And instead of the, dare I say it, drudgery. Dare I say, monotony. Maybe, just maybe. You won't want to wait to get together to make much of who God is and what he has done because he alone is worth it. We can experience this sort of joy even in the slog of life, of coming together to rejoice in the God who saves. What a privilege. Let's Let's not neglect it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word.
And we thank you that you are sufficient in all of your ways and you reveal to us your worth. God, I pray that our hearts would indeed be filled with great joy and wonder and worship, that our hearts would be made to see upward in worship. God, would you help us to live out our lives faithful, following after you, depending on your grace, living for your glory. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.